This week on New Mexico in Focus, the Postal Service and New Mexico's election. What the Secretary of State and County Clerks are watching. It's really important that we as election officials are doing everything we can uh, with the means that we have available to us to communicate with the voter. And Albuquerque considers the future of a controversial sculpture. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. Today is Friday, August 21st, 2020. And as you heard from our uh, tease there, a lot of election focus this week. Of course, the Postal Service very much in the local and national headlines with concerns uh, largely expressed by the Trump administration about the post office ability to handle the number of mail-in votes that will come in the upcoming general election via absentee voting. We have got Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver on deck this week, as well as a county clerk to talk about how they are approaching the elections and what they're doing to mitigate those problems and what they think about those concerns. We will also hear from the line panel talking about all of this as well. Joining us on the line this week, uh, regular Serge Martinez, also Diane Snyder, former state senator. Always love having her in. Also, it's been a while, but Ed Perea is back. He is a attorney and public safety analyst. Uh, and so great panel there of line folks for you. We're also picking up the conversation on controversial sculptures, symbols, statues that really kicked off after uh, the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. We saw this all over the country. In parts of the country, it was really focused on Confederate uh, soldiers and um, even the naming of schools and roads and things after these figures, as well as these sculptures uh, here in Albuquerque, particularly. It focused around the La Jornada sculpture that's in Old Town that features, among other statues and sculptures, a sculpture of the Spanish conquistador Don Juan de Oñate, very controversial here in New Mexico. We're going to talk about what Albuquerque is doing with that statue moving forward. They pulled it down after a protest turned violent and an individual was shot uh, during that protest back in June. And the city is looking for public input on how to handle uh, the La Ornada sculpture and this is a procedure process they may use with other controversial statues and memorials and symbols as well. So we'll let you know how you can get involved in all of that. Um, extra material for you this week, too, because today, uh, well, not today, but this week, Wednesday, actually, was the official 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote in the United States. And we want to remind you of our podcast series, New Mexico and the Vote, which looks at all of the history of the women's suffrage movement in New Mexico. We also had a Facebook Live this week uh, where we talked about a lot of the events that are coming up, especially this weekend. Most of them virtual now, of course, because of COVID-19. 
but there's lots of ways you can get involved and celebrate this milestone as well as look at ways that the, the fight for gender equality is continuing today, how you can get involved. So we encourage you to go to our Facebook page at New Mexico in Focus and watch that Facebook Live with Megan Kamrick, our correspondent. She is the producer of that podcast, New Mexico and the Vote. Fascinating listen. If you get a chance, encourage you, if you haven't already, go back and listen to that as well. All right, right now we're going to kick things off where I started a minute ago, looking at election concerns and how election officials are dealing with concerns about postal delivery of absentee ballots um, and everything else going into the upcoming general election. Senior producer Matt Grubbs uh, is at the helm for this interview with Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, who is also joined by the Valencia County Clerk, Peggy Carabajal, and uh, they talk a lot about what they're doing right now. Busy days for them as it is for most folks, but here is their discussion about the upcoming elections, which is part of our Your NM Government project. This is with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter as we look at good government issues and election issues and transparency issues. So here now, Matt Grubbs. Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver and Valencia County Clerk Peggy Carbajal, thank you both so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, Maggie, I wanted to start with you. What are the federal requirements for uh, mail-in or absentee voting? Uh, Well, in terms of the law, uh, we are required to make sure that our overseas and military voters have access to ballots via the mail starting 45 days before the election. Um, We're not required to have mail-in voting here in New Mexico, but of course we do. Uh, We have state statutes and have for a long time that allow for any voter who chooses uh, to vote absentee through the mail to do so. Um, What we are doing for this election, of course, is working closely with the Postal Service. They have very specific guidelines that uh, they advise us to follow around making sure that ballots get to and from their intended uh, delivery point uh, effectively and quickly. Okay. Um, what are some of those guidelines and uh, the ones that are that are sort of important to people that they need to know? Sure. Well, what the Postal Service has told us uh, and has been emphasizing over and over again this year is that they have a really effective system uh, and that they can handle the, uh, the increased volume of election mail. But they do have best practices. And the best practice in the Postal Service's eyes is to make sure that you give a full week Uh, between when you put something in the mail and when it it gets to its intended delivery point. So here in New Mexico, during the special session this summer, we put uh, some guidelines into place for uh, absentee ballots that uh, will allow for the the full seven days time for a ballot to get mailed uh, to a voter and for the voter to have that full seven days to return that ballot through the mail as well, along with uh, implementing intelligent barcode, which is going to allow a voter, a county clerk, uh, or anybody to be able to see where that ballot is at any point uh, in the delivery process through our mail system. Uh, Peggy, can you walk me through sort of what your office will get out of out of that system? Um, yes, uh, thank you. Um, I think voters should have confidence in both their postal uh, workers and their election uh, administrators. We had some hiccups in our in the primary election, but after working with our uh, local postmaster, um, those were resolved. And um, as Madam Secretary said, 
um, I think the voters should probably wait um, a week before actually uh, receiving their ballots for, okay. uh, for the November election. Okay, and then it sounds like get them in uh, as, as soon as possible is kind of your advice. Yes. Um, the, the Postal Service, specifically the uh, Postmaster General for the, for the U.S., has sort of pivoted away from some of the, uh, the planned changes, um, but it sounds like there are also actual changes that have been made. Uh, Maggie, can you run us down what you know about um, post boxes, uh, mail sorting machines, things like that? Where are we? From my understanding of, of where we are here in New Mexico currently, uh, some of the bigger changes that had been implemented were uh, the removal or uh, decommissioning of the, the big sorting machines in the Albuquerque main office, as well as the implementation of that ESAS pilot program, which was just sending carriers out first thing in the morning with uh, the mail that was there, rather than waiting for every piece of mail uh, that could come in to be delivered that day, preventing them from making return trips, multiple trips back out on their route. Both of those issues, uh, to my current today knowledge, have been resolved. The sorting machines are being returned to the Albuquerque and recommissioned to the Albuquerque main office. And that ESAS program uh, has been canceled. There were two pilots, uh, one in Santa Fe and one in Albuquerque at two different stations. And that program has been uh, put on pause as well. Um, moving forward. So basically, my understanding of where we are today is that we are status quo here in New Mexico uh, in terms of those changes that were being implemented. And we're going to keep a close eye on that moving forward. Sure. And, and Peggy, you're sort of the, the first point of contact for a lot of voters um, when they have questions. Are you getting questions about the, the Postal Service and its role? Uh, yes. Uh, for the primary, we did. We did get a lot of questions. And uh, like I said, I think just meeting with the uh, postmaster and then uh, telling the voters that they would be getting their uh, ballot, you know, as quickly as possible. I think just communication, just keeping communication open with the post office uh, seemed to really help. The president, as he's voiced concerns, seems to seems to be concerned that, that ballots will get to and presumably be, be cast by people who no longer live at the address um, that's maybe on the voter rolls, people who might be dead. Um, the question, of course, is does that happen? And um, how can you be sure that you're getting a, a legitimate ballot back? Unfortunately, Matt, I think that there's a big disconnect between, you know, we have this partisan rhetoric going on, um, you know, in the in the heat of, of, a, of a presidential race. And then we have the practical uh, and real um, application of election law, you know, going on at, at the ground level in the states. And I think, unfortunately, there's just a huge disconnect there. Um, what I know and, and what I believe my, my colleague, uh, Clerk Carbajal knows, is that uh, we have a lot of systems in place to make sure, first and foremost, that we are sending a ballot uh, to a registered voter at the address, either where they're currently living or where they currently are staying in order to get that absentee ballot. They're required to provide a, a variety of 
personal information to us uh, that's not public information so that we know it's them, including their signature. Uh, we send their ballot to them. And then when it comes back to us, we are now requiring here in New Mexico, the signature and the last four of the social security number, which are two pieces of information that the voter has uh, and that the county clerk has, but that the public at large does not have. Um, we also are only mailing to voters uh, applications for a ballot um, that we know are currently getting their mail at that address. So if they've moved, uh, if we've gotten return mail from them, they are not going to get that automatic application like uh, Peggy is going to send in Valencia County. And uh, Peggy, can you talk to us a little bit about your decision to, um, to send the automatic application? That's not an actual ballot, um, but it's, uh, it's a way for folks to request it. Uh, correct. We have had a lot here in Valencia County. We have had a lot of um, requests already, uh, but we are telling them that we will be mailing them out September 14th. And the reason for my decision on that was that I don't want to confuse the voters. We did that in the primary. So I think if we keep consistently uh, with what we do with, with the process, um, the voters will feel more comfortable and, uh, and it's their decision. You know, it's their option uh, to vote in, in that respect. What kind of utilization did you see during, um, during the primary in Valencia County of, of absentee voting? Um, here in Valencia County, it was a little confusing at first um, with a lot of voters that had never voted absentee. And I think that they absolutely thought that they had to. Uh, we did consolidate, we did consolidate our um, polling locations here. And I, I really believe that they thought they did, they had to vote one way, but there's always options. They can still vote early. Um, and I think there was just some confusion, but we tried that through Facebook, through um, brochures and stuff like that to get the word out to the voters, to make sure that they, um, they, they know um, basically how to um, get that information out to them. And uh, it seemed to work. So just constant communication with the voter uh, really helps. Secretary, are you finding that there's a fair bit of confusion out there among voters as to how they're supposed to cast a ballot in November? You know, I think I think Peggy's right. Um, you know, between the pandemic, uh, the misinformation and disinformation, again, that that partisan toxic rhetoric that's just sort of out there, um, voters are really inundated with a lot of uh, confusing and conflicting information. Um, and I think that Peggy's right. It's really important that we as election officials are doing everything we can uh, with the means that we have available to us to communicate with the voter to make it more clear. So in our office, and I know uh, Peggy and our county clerks across the state, we are already starting the process for this general election of making sure know what their options are, what is going to be available to them if they're if they choose an in-person option, when uh, and where those locations will be. And then of course, making clear that the absentee option is absolutely available. Uh, it is something that I have and continue to encourage, particularly if we see a, a second wave of the pandemic coming up here in the next uh, month or two. Uh, the numbers look good right now, but we don't know what they're going to be in October. Um, so, yes, there has been confusion this year uh, because of the, just the state of the world right now, but we are working diligently to cut through that clutter and make sure that voters know what their options are and how, when, and where to cast that ballot. Can I request an absentee ballot right now? 
You can. Uh, and right now, the paper form is available. Uh, it's available online on my website. If you call uh, Peggy or any of the county clerk's offices, they will happily put one in the mail to you that day that you can return. Um, and our online absentee portal will be going live uh, just towards the end of this month. And uh, we did see a lot of voters really choose that option during the spring. And we anticipate heavy use of that this fall as well to apply online for a ballot. Um, do either of you have a have a good feel for um, whether clerks um, are are utilizing the ability to start counting some of these absentee ballots early? Um, I know that's sort of anathema to how we sort of think an election would work, but there are provisions in the law that that do allow for early tabulation of absentee ballots. Is that correct? We normally bring our uh, absentee uh, poll officials in five days before. And um, they do their processing, everything. They don't run anything through the tabulator, of course, until election night. But we had a little less than 10,000 for the primary. So it was uh, fairly busy, but the process works well with what we have in place. And for the larger counties, Madam Secretary, um, how do you sort of ask them to work with, you know, when they have, say, tens of thousands of absentee ballots? Well, you know, the county clerks, uh, they, they know well, uh, you know, what they're dealing with in, in their own county. And I do think that during the primary, just the sheer volume of ballots took all of us by surprise. Um, you know, the, the primary election looked very different, ultimately, from what we had been planning for back in March, in early March, before the pandemic. And we were already well down the road of planning. But what I can say is from the conversations that I've had with county clerks in, in big counties and small across the state is they do understand that uh, getting started earlier uh, is going to be of the essence uh, in this November election that they're going to need all the time they can get, especially because we uh, potentially are facing big challenges hiring enough folks, you know, having enough folks come in and work, serving as those uh, absentee poll officials that Peggy talked about to help with that process. And uh, when you don't have uh, enough folks, you know, what you need is more time. Right. So we do have uh, those provisions in place, as Peggy said, and I do think our clerks will be taking advantage of that. Well, I want to thank you both for taking some time with us. Um, this is an important topic and we'll continue to follow it. Um, but thanks for all your hard work, too. We really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you for joining us. Before we step away from Maggie Toulouse-Oliver and Peggy Carabajal from Valencia County, she's the clerk there, we uh, did some extra with them. Um, going back to my earlier comments about the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote with the ratification of the 19th Amendment, here you have two prominent female election officials in the state, and we wanted to take a few extra minutes with them to get their thoughts on where we've come and where we still have to go and the importance of uh, your right to vote and using that right as responsible citizens. So here's more, a little bit more with Matt Grubbs, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, and Peggy Carabajal. Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver and Valencia County Clerk Peggy Carbajal, thank you both for taking some extra time with us. I wanted to talk to you um, about the 19th Amendment. We celebrate its 100th anniversary um, this this week and a um, uh, hundred years, but maybe 150 years too late. I'm wondering sort of what you're both 
feeling um, about sort of how far we've come as a nation in, in terms of, of the right to vote? Well, I'll kick off with that one, Matt. Um, you know, this whole year, I think, has been really an awareness and a celebration of, of the fact that we are now 100 years down the road from the women's right to vote in this country. Uh, you know, of course, in my entire lifetime, um, my, my, in my lifetime, my mother's lifetime, my grandmother's lifetime, we've always had the right to vote. Um, and here we are though, 100 years later, and we still have a lot of glass ceilings to break. Uh, we still have not elected a woman president. We're not going to be doing that this year. Uh, we do have an opportunity potentially to elect a, a black and Asian uh, American uh, woman to the vice presidency, which would of course be a huge uh, barrier to break. But uh, we've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. And uh, there's still a lot of issues around access to the ballot, um, not just for women in general, but for a lot of people, people of color, uh, people who live in rural communities that, you know, we still have work to do there. Sure, Peggy, uh, how, are, how are you feeling as you sort of look at the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment? Um. I feel like I've, I've been in county government for a little over 30 years. And um, I, I guess in that, in that span of time, uh, the right to vote has been very precious. And since being in county government for so many years, I've always felt like there's a, we're not partisan if you're an elected official um, in, in that respect. Um, we treat every voter, every um, poll official, every a person, we, we, we try to um, make sure that they understand it, what, what their position is. Um, uh, in here, in Valencia County, we're basically no party. Of course, we, we have to be a party to run for office, but we try to strive that voting is what's more important than anything, your right to vote. And um, I think that's what we strive uh, especially uh, for women is, is, is the right to vote. And um, um, it's, that, that's just uh, very uh, uh, precious to me in my, in my lifetime of county government is just to give that opportunity uh, to vote. Do you both get questions from women who are interested in, in running and in being on the ballot? I certainly do. Um, I've been really active in helping <clears throat> elect women uh, to all levels of office since I was really, really young, uh, starting at around the age of 18. Um, and I, I work with and mentor a lot of women who, who choose to run for office. You know, as Peggy will tell you, this is not for the faint of heart. Um, our, our jobs, funny enough, you know, county clerk, as Peggy is and I was, and secretary of state, you know, those have always been sort of perceived as, as the quote unquote, the jobs for women. Um, and, you know, I think, I think we sort of believe that, you know, as women, we, when it comes to these uh, complicated jobs of keeping records and making sure that elections uh, come off well, um, I think being a woman and running elections, um, it, it's, it's actually very special. And the fact that, you know, women have historically had these jobs is very special. Um, and so speaking for me and, and I think for Peggy too, I, I think we take that very seriously and we wear, uh, we wear that with pride. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking a little bit of extra time with us just to just to chat about this. It's a great thing. So we really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. 
As with most things lately, of course, the political topic du jour this week in many ways was the Postal Service and concerns coming out of the Trump administration over whether or not they can handle all of the mailing uh, ballots that are going to come in via absentee ballots for the election. Of course, we just talked to election officials about that. Now we pick that conversation up with the line panel who listened to that interview, have some reactions to it, and what the state is doing to ensure that everybody's vote gets counted and is fair and is proper headed into November. Welcome to the Line Opinion Panel, where we'll pick up on that discussion about the Postal Service and absentee balloting. Joining me at our virtual line table today, we welcome Diane Snyder. She's a former state senator and a line regular here on New Mexico in Focus. Another line regular and UNM Law School professor, Serge Martinez, is with us. And we welcome back Ed Perea. He's a lawyer and public safety analyst. Now, Diane, let me start with you. Is there a difference to you between mail-in voting, like the president talks about, in absentee voting? Is there a difference yes. for you? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Because mail-in voting, it's actually mail-in balloting. And what it does is you send a ballot directly to the name you have. In New Mexico, you when you request an absentee ballot, or if, if they mail suggesting you should apply, or you have the option to apply for uh, absentee balloting, you have to complete an application. So they know you're a person who's asking for a ballot. And that, and I have to tell you, and I know they say this doesn't happen, but it sure as heck does. When I ran for office, there were so many times for the same address, there might be six or eight names on that address. Now, I know the county clerk and I know the secretary of state and the parties, both parties have worked really hard in the uh, recent years to try to update those lists, but it still happens. I checked with a couple of candidates this year and it's still happening. It happened during the primary. So if you send a ballot directly to that location for all six people, there's nothing that will stop the person who lives there from completing those ballots. And there's no record. Let me, let me ask you a question. You remember how Diane Duran tried to deal with this during her time? Uh, was that an ill-fated attempt, ill-conceived? You know, kind of cleaning up the roles as you're describing. Well, you're, you have to purge the roles at some point. And it, you have to, it's so scary to people about being, uh, being purged. But the thing I noticed, um, let's see, I had got my license renewed two years ago, and they now ask you, do you want to register? Mm -hmm. Well, the, <laughs> you have to be careful because if you're already registered and nothing's changed, you don't want to click yes on that. But if you want to, but if you've had changes, it's a real easy way to update your information. Now, there's a click on the county clerk's website. You can go in and change your and update your information. But it's one of those things we don't think about till we get close to an election. So, so yes, I think there's a major difference. I like absentee balloting. I, I remember back years and years ago, you had to say what the reason was. Well, the legislature, why you were requesting one, were you really going to be out of town? Or That's were right. you really sick? But right. they changed that because they and made it more encompassing that if it because like uh my 94 year old mother it's just so much easier now she loved going to vote in person 
but now it's more convenient for her to do an mm -hmm. absentee ballot. So I like that we have absentee ballot in New Mexico, but just mail-in balloting is let me, scary. Uh, let, me, uh, let, me, let me get um, Serge in here real quick on this on, on Senator as well. The idea Serge that the Postmaster General has said, look, you know, we're just going to stop doing this, but there's still not a lot of clarity if they're going to restore what has already happened. Are you comfortable with what you just heard from Maggie Toulouse Oliver about our situation here in New Mexico and that we're ready to go given what the Postmaster General has been doing lately? Uh, I mean, I'm never sanguine about things working the way that we want them to work and everything uh, going right and um, at the most stressful of times. Right. I mean, I am concerned, right? The postmaster general has said, okay, we'll stop dismantling things, but has not committed to sort of keeping things, you know, restoring things to whatever level of service that, that our, you know, the secretary of state here and other states has been depending on. Now, you know, I, if the secretary of state tells me that uh, she's comfortable with the, the current situation, she certainly knows better than I do, but the, the upheaval and the uncertainty and the sort of the instability of the situation certainly does not make me feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Well, we got Ed, we got that, Ed Pereo, we got that letter, we meaning New Mexico, the letter in July saying New Mexico was not one of the states that was going to be impacted by this. But as these things sort of go day to day, you never know. But I, I'm curious your opinion about what's been going on across the country when you, when you see these things about machines being removed and now we get all these pictures of mailboxes being removed. I mean, I saw one on Facebook yesterday about uh, that corner right by the federal building on Central uh, by 5th. And there used to be three mailboxes there. Now there's one. Are we overblowing something here? Or is this something we should be rightfully concerned about what's happening here? Well, Gene, and you're correct on both. We may in some cases be overblowing this just because of all the dialogue and press we've been getting. But on the other hand, we want to make sure that we're aware and alert as to, as to what might be taking place and any changes. I've actually uh, reached out to some postal carriers and asked them directly, you know, do you see changes in your day-to-day -day operation? What are you doing differently? And time and time again, uh, I'm hearing it's business as usual. If we need to work overtime, we're working overtime. Uh, the mails are going. The mail is going out and being delivered, consistent with the way that it's it's always been delivered. Uh, you know, they they talk about we're hearing the talk from the top, but they they haven't seen much of an impact in the day-to-day -day operations. We often hear the, this phrase that elections are local. Well, voting and the process of voting is local too. So where we may see issues in the Northeast, which I think they may have their own unique issues, I think New Mexico is in a different place altogether. I don't think that we are experiencing or may ever experience some of the talk that we are seeing uh, occurring on other other parts of the other parts of the country. So the the, the letter carriers that I spoke to are fairly confident uh, that it's business as usual, and they have not seen any directive or any order that has come down that's going to modify the way that they do their business. Uh, and they have said that you know the uh, the uh, uh, postal leadership in the state you know, routinely get together and discuss for themselves best practices. And so for now, uh, we don't see a lot of changes here locally, but let's continue to be uh, aware of what's taking place out there and address those issues as they come up. Mm -hmm. You know, Serge, interestingly, our, our congressional delegation is asking to see some of these facilities. They want to walk in and inspect what's been going on. I, it's kind of an interesting idea. How does that strike you? 
Uh, I mean, if I were to walk into a postal facility, I would not have the slightest idea whether it was working well or Fair not point. well. Right? <laughs> it, it's just like when I, you know, my car doesn't start and I look at the engine as though it will somehow become clear to me after 50 years how these things actually work. Um, but, you know, the idea of uh, taking this, this intense personal interest in how these things work is, I think it's encouraging, right? It's a good idea. I, I think the postal service is one of those things that, you know, it works great uh, and we take it for granted until it doesn't. So getting a better handle on sort of the operations and how it actually works from folks who are making some of these decisions about funding and, and other sort of stuff is, is commendable. I think it's not just the postal service, right? That's, that's a legislator should be uh, curious, uh, in, you know, insatiably curious about all the things that they're legislating on and, and, um, and I'm encouraged by the by that idea. Again, the practical value of it may be less than the actual. You, you can you can certainly imagine the kind of phone calls they're getting at congressional offices, though. I mean, it's a federal issue. You can see how people would go straight to the to the congressional folks. There's no doubt they're hearing about it, aren't, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, there. Yeah, this has been you know front page news for quite a while, and I'm sure folks are very very concerned. The post office, the postal service, is so vital to so many people for so many reasons, you know, not just voting, which is obviously crucial, but, you know, medication, hearing from their friends, checks, you know, big things like that. And so if you, if there's any sense that that's gonna be diminished or messed with in any way, that's obviously gonna be a massive issue for people. I'd imagine the phone lines are burning up mm -hmm. as they should be. Yeah, there you go. I did, go ahead, Sender, please. I did a little research on this. And one, one thing that really struck me was a, a study that was done uh, coming from the, the post office or from the government, and that there's around 471 million pieces of mail every day. If everybody who voted in the last election, not the primary, but the last general election, presidential election, all mailed their ballot on the same day, it would still only be about 30% of what the daily mail is for the post office to handle. So, and the thing that, that goes along with that is, now the timing was, has been terrible, but the post office, like every business, has to be updated. I remember, uh, not too far from me, there used to be two mailboxes, two blue boxes. And, but there's not a lot, I mean, there was, you could, one time I saw the guy pulling out the, the bags and they were virtually empty. So. The post office has to look and see and evaluate is having to do I, do we get enough mail in those two boxes to validate having the time spent doing it so you take one and you put it someplace that's getting more mail uh one of the things also this uh study said was the change in the kinds of mail being mailed so many of the <clears throat> flyers that we used to get in the in the mail are online you get a you get a notice. I know Walgreens now. I got a notice. And I have to see my weekly flyer uh, on the the internet. So there's a there's more packaging, which is good. Uh, you can see that happening. Well, that would cover your medical supplies, things like that. So I think the post office is doing the best they can. Do they need some more money to help them get through the pandemic, like everybody does? Yes, but I I think that they are 
doing what's needed, updating things as they need to, and making adjustments. It's just that rhetoric, and I believe the secretary referred to that, rhetoric on both sides, that's just scaring the people to death. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm like all, uh, my two colleagues here. I have faith in these local guys. I love my mailman. You know, I, I just think they will do it and do it right. That's right. I'd have to agree. Uh, just a quick correction from me. That is Golden Fifth, where those mailboxes were previously, not Central okay. Fifth. I apologize. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have this group talk about virtual fall events. What's good? What's a bad idea? And what's just looks weird? Historic week also this week in terms of American politics. We saw our first ever Democratic National Convention as the Democratic Party officially nominated Joe Biden as their presidential candidate, and most of it was done virtually and featured some prominent New Mexicans. Uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham addressed the nation on Wednesday night Talked a lot about renewable energy efforts here in New Mexico. She was featured in front of a solar farm up in northern New Mexico the night before when we had the official roll call votes cast for the presidential nominees. We saw Representative Derek Lenti uh, from Sandia Pueblo um, made a lot of headlines across the country because of the beautiful way it featured New Mexico's exquisite landscape. A lot of people tweeting and showing off that wonderful view Uh, That wonderful scenery that was featured there got us to thinking a lot about how everyone is trying to adapt to doing things virtually these days and online because we can't all gather yet as we normally would. People are getting really creative with this, sometimes so creative that it may seem a little jarring or strange to people. So we wanted to uh, sit down with the line panel a little bit more and talk about some of these efforts and uh, if it's still accomplishing what people think it should, what we can learn, what we can do better about taking these events, uh, especially we've got some big ones coming up here in New Mexico, the burning of Zozobra. We've got the State Fair, which is doing a lot of things virtually. We've got Balloon Fiesta. So here now, Gene Grant and the line panel on virtual events. There's something to be said for the old college try as we attempt to adapt our daily lives to the pandemic. We've seen it this week as Democrats took a swing at a virtual nominating convention. Republicans get their turn next week. Then we'll see an actual burning of Zozobra, but one that's broadcast and webcast and even shown on drive-in movie theater screens. And there's going to be a virtual state fair. I love it. Let's start with the convention. Serge, did you like what you saw in terms of presentation when it came to the Democrats and what they've been doing the last uh, couple of nights? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen every minute of it, but I've, I've found it to be pretty uh, effective in terms of, you know, as a presentation, it's obviously much slicker than, you know, what I do in my classrooms uh, when I'm teaching, uh, that much more produced. But I've been, I've been impressed by sort of the way that it has been adapted to this new format. You know, the, the, my expectations were low going in, uh, but I've found it to be, I've been pretty impressed with the way it's worked. Senator Snyder, should the uh, Republicans been take, be taking notes? Did you see anything that you said, oh boy, Democrats got this on lock. Republicans better find a way to do this as well or better. Anything in particular that's grabbed you remotely yes, like the this? State, 
the state roll call was just ah. tremendous. And I'm sitting there going, I hope somebody is, has had a brilliant idea because this was wonderful. And I would not object at all to seeing our 50 states and the territories one more time uh, with a different location. I mean, what a beautiful tour of our country that it was and the people. And it also kept the time limit to not being five hours or so, and that's an exaggeration of states voting. But I really thought the states were inventive. I loved ours. I thought New Mexico's was wonderful and certainly showed uh, a part of us. And uh, so, yeah, I hope the Republicans come up with something equally striking. Interesting yeah. point. I like that word, striking. It should be, actually, it should be. Ed Perea, interestingly, Zizobra, as I mentioned, is going to burn. Uh, it's going to happen. But here's what I'm curious about. It's supposed to be a no crowd thing, but how do, how do you manage that? You can't tell me people aren't in Santa Fe going to be walking around trying to get a glimpse of Zizobra for real being burned. Is this actually a doable thing, for, you know, when you think about it? Well, it's a, it's a challenge. It's, it's clearly a challenge and it's, it's going to require everyone to adapt to this new transition, this new norm, which we are, we're currently dealing with. You know, I know the, uh, the organizers would love for people to just virtually log on their computer and have access via their webcam to the, uh, to the entire event. And we know there are processes by which people can put forth their, uh, uh, those things that they want to they want to uh, burn through the use of the zobra on that on that evening, um, but yeah, that'll be that'll be a real challenge. Uh, you know, the issue of social distancing, uh, wearing face masks. I'm not sure whether this crowd that uh, participates in zobra in greater numbers are conservative or uh, maybe liberal. But you know, I think we find the usage of some of these guidelines for uh, for public health and public safety, social distancing, and face masks tend to be sometimes partisan. So I think depending on who your uh, observers are, I think you may either see greater use of public health precautions or, or not as well. But because this is so new for everyone, it's, it's going to be a challenge and it's probably going to be a, a, a wait and see. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right on that. You know, house parties, I mean, who knows what's going to be going on there. Hey, um, Serge, we got to talk about state fair. It's a big deal here. The idea of a, of a virtual remote state fair. They're planning on doing some interesting things, though. It really some thought went into this. When you really look over the list, pet costumes, flower arrangement contests, uh, animal contests, of course, for the 4-H kids. When you read over this, is this something that appeals to you as a, as a state fair patron? Is this something you would, you would uh, participate in? So, you know, just like with the DNC, right, I, I have to confess that I am skeptical of these online celebrations, but um, the more I learn about them, the more, I'm, the more I'm becoming more, I guess, less skeptical, right? You hear about, uh, you know, I've heard about like beer festivals where they send you the beer and you taste it with the, folk, the other folks at the festival. Uh, Burning Man, has talked about what they're doing. One thing that I thought was really charming was they're sending out instructions to do your own, create your own little Burning Man and burn him yourself. Um, so they're getting really creative with, folks are getting really creative for how they do this. And I think um, it's conceivable that people much more creative and artistic and thoughtful than I am will be able to pull something off in a way that is, you know, has the charm and intimacy and appeal of the, of the state fair. 
Um, I, again, I, I'm having trouble seeing it, but I'm beginning to have more faith that these things can actually work. Mm -hmm. Senator Snyder, as I read the list here, pet costume contests, um, state for poster design, back to nature photography. I mentioned the flower thing, sidewalk chalk art, cookie decorating, table scrapes, cake decorating. There's a lot of things going on and it should be kind of fun. I'm, I'm, I know I'm gonna participate, that's for sure. Let's talk about Balloon Fiesta though. That's a different matter altogether as well. I, you know, are you seeing, they have some virtual plans maybe to get some balloons in the air. I, I gotta wonder, it might be a painful thing to watch. You know, not as many balloons as we're used to seeing going up in the air. How do you think a virtual balloon fiesta would come off? Are you asking me? Yes, I am. Sorry about oh, that. Oh, I'm sorry. Senator, I'm sorry. Well, I looked at it and I read their website. I'd like a little more detail, but they may not have a little more detail at this point of who's participating. You know, we have such a high volume of international balloonists that come in and there is, I see them choosing to participate from their countries. Now, I'm an incurable optimist. Sorry, Serge, but I want, I want this to be fun. I want to see. And can you imagine the uh, special shapes, how fabulous it would be? Because cameras can get up closer if you're not there. Now, if you've gone out to Balloon Fiesta here in New Mexico, it's a different world. But I think it'll give you a closeness that we won't feel so isolated and, and that people who own balloons, I can see them say, at least we get to do something during the, uh, the first weekend. And it's Saturday and Sunday, so people can watch it. Uh, I can see uh, your family sitting around the TV and, and mom and dad drinking mimosas and the kids drinking hot chocolate and, and watching because it starts at 7.30 in the morning. So you get the real feel of the time. Now, I don't know about those guys in, in um, Russia or Switzerland or places, what time it'll be for them. Right. But I, st I still think, I think it's an attempt to give you just some kind of feeling that we're not totally losing Bloom Fiesta. That's right. That's right. I have to agree with uh, Serge as well. At least there's an effort being made. It's creative. People are mm -hmm. trying something. So we'll see how this goes. We have one more go round with this group. We're talking to Mexico's attempt to bounce back from COVID-19 closures. Mentioned it off the top of the show, but the city of Albuquerque, as, is, as are many cities across the country, are looking for ways to deal with complicated and emotionally charged histories that are symbolized lots of times by sculptures and statues of controversial figures. Here in New Mexico, we've been talking about this for several months now, especially uh, sculptures of the Spanish conquistador Don Juan de Oñate. Uh, one of those is the La Ornada sculpture that sits outside the Albuquerque Museum, or did up until protests after the killing of George Floyd in June, when a protest there ended in violence. Um, that You had protesters of the statue that were gathered, and you had militia group members there that were there to, they say, protect the statue. And in the midst of that, a gentleman who appears to not be connected to the militia groups but was caught on tape harassing a lot of the protesters and even pulling a woman to the ground, he got into an encounter with some of those protesters, ended up pulling a gun, um, and a man was shot. And there's legal proceedings going along with all of that, but the city decided after that that they would pull the statue temporarily to avoid any further violence as they figured out how to deal with the statue moving forward. 
They have come up with a plan now, and, and it involves and needs input from all of you. So now we're going to turn things over to correspondent Gwyneth Dolan, who sits down with Alicia Manzano from the city of Albuquerque to talk about their plans to get public input as they look for ways to honor all of these different and diverse cultures and histories in our state, but also be sensitive to what those symbols often mean. What to do with controversial statues and symbols? It's a question many communities are asking after recent protests of Confederate statues or here in New Mexico's Spanish conquistadors like Don Juan de Oñate. Now here in Albuquerque, the issue came to a head after a protest of the La Jornada sculpture in Old Town. It turned violent back in June. The city of Albuquerque ended up pulling that statue down in hopes of avoiding more demonstrations as it looked for new ways to address New Mexico's complicated and emotional history. New Mexico in Focus correspondent Gwyneth Dolan got an update this week on the city's new approach and how you can get involved in providing thoughts and suggestions about what to do with the La Jornada sculpture moving forward. Our guest today is Alicia Manzano from the city of Albuquerque. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gwyneth, for having me. So the city is looking for what to do with La Jornada, the, uh, the sculpture that includes the statue of Don Juan de Oñate, Given that Oñate is such a controversial figure, what is your approach here? Is the idea just figure out what is the least offensive thing and make it happen? Or do you think there's actually a way to, um, to kind of meet all the different perspectives and cultural stakeholders who are so divided on this? Well, it's a great question. And I think the reason that we decided to do what we're doing, which is to engage in a community dialogue, was to get everyone's opinions on this and really to engage in a conversation that is much more than just about the statue. It's about race, it's about our history, it's about healing. Um, so, so far we've had about a hundred folks engage in the process and you have to commit to three community conversations or dialogues. Um, and we also have an online tool for folks to engage with us. They can um, take a survey online and, and tell us what they think about the statute. They don't want to engage in the lengthier process. But for us, it was more about not just removing the statue as that's a temporary solution um, because it was a public safety concern, but more so about really listening to the community, all of their concerns, because it won't end with just this one statue. You know, I, I think we've all been very aware of the diversity of opinions out there. Are they, un, is it impossible to bring them to some common ground? You know, I don't think it's impossible. And what we've been seeing in our preliminary sessions is folks actually seeing some common ground. You know, it's, it's interesting, it's a passionate issue. Folks really feel strongly one way or the other, as you mentioned. But there is a, an understanding of the culture and of the aspects of history that impact our state and how diverse it is. And so I do think that there will be areas of common ground as they move forward. You've already started these conversations. Are you sensing any little places of that common ground? Can you give us an idea of some places where you're seeing people come together? You know, I think even just seeing people understanding the other's point of view is a long ways off from what we saw in the very beginning, right? Usually sometimes you want to just see someone digging their heels in, and this isn't the case. There's a lot of listening happening, so I find that to be common ground um, in the moment that we're in. 
So after you've gathered all this public input online and in, in person, um, such as it is, what happens after that? So the hope is that after all of the conversations, and of course, like three different dialogues, because we understand that in the first dialogue, we're not going to get at a solution, right? It's going to be a lot about um, understanding where you're coming from and where the other person is coming from. But when we do get to the point of solutions, uh, we'd like to have the community recommend a set of solutions first to the Public Arts Board, um, because that is where this piece of artwork sits. Um, and then eventually, if it needed to end up at City Council for any changes, if there needed to be any changes in ordinance or otherwise. And so that's uh, the hope at this point. So there is a, you know, a protocol. The Art Board has to make recommendations to the City Council and to the mayor. Um, and so um, do you think the City Council and the mayor will have their own revisions that they might make after all the community input is gathered? You know, I can't speculate on what council wants to do, but I do know that the mayor has stated he really wants this to be community driven. And it's the same sentiment I've heard from many council members in my conversations with them. And so I think that the um, solutions that come forward from the community will be um, highly regarded and considered. So what happens if there's no consensus? If you get real close and people do a lot of listening and understanding, but people cannot agree on what to do with the statue? What happens then? It's a good question. I mean, I think the hope is that we get to a point of um, where there can actually be some solutions that are put forward and voted on by the Public Arts Board. So is this process with the community solutions table, is that something that you can incorporate into discussions about other controversial symbols here in the city? Um, you know, are there other symbols, statues, sculptures, things that you have been talking about uh, so far that, that might require these same conversations? You know, for this process specifically, we're just talking about the Onyata sculpture, but we do understand we've crafted this entire process, which is community led. We have prof professional facilitators who are um, guiding folks through this conversation. And so I think that as folks are um, wondering about street names or park names, that this um, process can be utilized in the future and replicated um, if they think that it's been successful. Alicia, you mentioned that you're collecting online feedback. How can people participate in that? Where do they go? So you can visit us online at cabq.gov slash rhhp. And you can sign up as a convener. So in other words, if you have a network of eight to 10 people that you'd like to convene um, for a session, we can do it that way. Or if you'd like to participate in one of the scheduled sessions, you can sign up there as well. If you don't want to engage that way and you really just want to provide your thoughts on solutions, you can fill out the survey, um, which is uh, on that link as well. So when do you expect to have recommendations ready for the art board? You know, we're hoping to wrap this up, you know, in late fall, um, early winter. We'd love to have um, solutions for, for folks to really take a look at by the end of the year. And then they go to city council and the mayor. When might you expect best case scenario, you've got something to move forward with? Uh, we're hopeful that it's all wrapped up by the end of the year. That would be the hope that we have some of these solutions uh, presented uh, by the fall and then uh, council voting on them or the public arts voting on them then sent to council. Um, so that's the hope at this point that the issue or not the issue, it's actually a really good thing is that so many people are interested. 
So we have um, community dialogues going on throughout the week. Um, and as you can imagine, when you're committing to three sessions, that does take some time and we want to be able to hear everyone's voices. And so um, once we have that piece wrapped up, then we can go into community solutions. And then we also wanna wrap in the data that we garner from um, the online survey that's being conducted right now, which that survey actually closes at the end of this month on August 30th. Great, Alicia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Gwyneth. The news seems to be uh, trending in a good way in terms of COVID-19 in New Mexico. All this on the heels of back to school for students all of them in New Mexico, really, except for a few exceptions, are doing virtually right now, at least until after Labor Day. On Wednesday, the Albuquerque Public Schools, the school board, voted to keep students entirely virtually until uh, the start of second semester in January. That was the big news that came out this week. We will hear from the state, I'm sure, next week about what the plans are for the rest of schools Again, the governor had put a date to see where things were after the Labor Day weekend. So if not next week, shortly after, we'll get a feel for the possibility of some schools returning to a hybrid model uh, to see how that goes as we try to get the kiddos back in school and restore their educational experience. But we wanted to check in with the line before we end the show to get their thoughts on where the numbers are headed and how back to school is faring so far. Here's Gene Grant. It's been a somewhat encouraging week for COVID-19 news here in New Mexico, as the state had two days midweek of sub 100 case counts. It jumped up on Wednesday, but we're already nearing the end of the governor's public health order. Ed Perea, what's the big decision you see the governor having to make? Well, I think the decision that everyone is waiting for is when are we gonna open up and to what degree are we gonna open up? But we've heard so much in the news about the restaurants and, and, and this uh, inside dining uh, and the frustrations that are out there amongst the, the business community. And it's created a lot of conflict uh, in, in, in our communities uh, between government and the, uh, and, the, and the business community. I think uh, there's a lot of optimism out there. If we start to look at the, look at the data, uh, the number of positivity rates are, are coming down. We're under the, the, the goal that the governor has set for herself, herself and for ourselves as a, as a community. So I think if we're looking at this and we're um, a little concerned as to what the future looks like, I think there's a, a ray of hope, a ray of sunshine that we are seeing. Uh, obviously, we need to be very careful because just easy as some of these numbers have come down, and they've been coming down since, since, early, since early August, they can spike back up. And, and I know the governor has expressed some concern with the uh, Labor Day holiday coming upon us just around the corner. Uh, over the course of the past few holidays that we've had, we generally see spikes thereafter. And so that could risk this opening of the, uh, of the businesses back up. And, and I know, again, that is what everyone across the board, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, I mean, we really need that regeneration of our, of our, of our economy and to ensure that, you know, we try to get back to business um, because a lot of people have been, have been hurt by it. So I am, you know, I'm hopeful that these numbers that we've been seeing and these goals uh, that we've, we've accomplished and that we've set for ourselves uh, are going to produce something very positive and allow us as a state, New Mexico, New Mexico to continue to, to, to move forward uh, as a community. Senator, interestingly, uh, Ed just mentioned the restaurants, of course. There's a big Supreme Court date coming up next week. 
Uh, we will be covering that here on New Mexico PBS. We'll be doing a live stream of that hearing, as a matter of fact. Um, but you can't help but think about cooler temperatures coming for the restaurants. They really struggled with having folks outdoors in the heat. Now they're going to have to struggle with folks outdoors in the cold. I, I just, you know, is there some wiggle room for the restaurants here, in your view, given the numbers we've seen over the past week and where we're trending? I think so. Um, you know, we had that small little window here that you were allowed to go inside restaurants. And I went to two different ones. They had their, it was, it was amazing. They, everything, they, they complied with all the rules. There was social distancing. People had masks on, except when they were ready to eat. Uh, waiters had theirs on all the time. Um, I just felt like they were complying in the same way that is, is if I was going to one of the big box stores or something. Uh, now I'm there because the time you're there was about the same time, an hour or so. But I, I think if we keep getting better and better, then I think it's important that we open those up because that's also an opportunity for recreation with your spouse or your children, your whole family. Um, I'm very concerned about um, the seasonal change because I've been also where I'm sitting out on a patio and I have to tell you, it's, it's a night, some of them have been a nightmare. One I went to really had this down good. They had big fans and big tubs of ice to where the wind blew across and it made it like air conditioning outside. Now there are wonderful heat lamps and things that you can do um, in the winter time, but it's still uh, they can't have total sides and closed in That's or right. they're it's being like inside. Yep. So I think we're facing a real hit again if we don't open up the restaurants. And and it's not just the restaurants themselves. It's the whole population. Uh, I mean, I miss the movies. I miss going out to lunch with my friends and meeting up with them. I miss just getting together a group of friends and, and having dinner or something. I I and I've been as ardent as everybody else. I've been supporting local businesses mm -hmm. and doing takeout and going to some patios. But I think our numbers show that we could gradually try this and let them see. And if it doesn't work, you can always change it back. But at I mean, I've forgotten the number of how many restaurants have closed permanently already. Right. right. And. And that's it's an, it's an issue. Yeah, yeah, it's an issue. Serge, pick up on that. And I've got another question for you as well. But uh, this idea that, you know, the governor is in a space now where she could potentially have a little wiggle room. Let's, you know, even holding restaurants aside here, there are a number of other types of businesses that are waiting. Uh, we have a big soccer team here we have, that are mm -hmm. waiting for the word to start playing. Does she have some wiggle room here? The numbers are looking pretty good. Uh, yeah, so Jean, first let me apologize. I was experiencing some technical difficulties and missed quite a bit of what was what came before, so I apologize for you're quite all right for stepping on anybody. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like they were waiting for me to start talking to start with the yard work again uh, here outside my house. It's a it's a real confluence of uh, obstacles at the moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a good moment, right? To to make some of these decisions and to and to be able to to open things up um, and and take advantage of all the work that you know that New Mexicans have done and all the things that we've that we've 
uh, been going through to try to get to this moment. Are we are we good enough at masks now that we could do this? Do you know what I mean? It, it, if yeah. we go back to how we did it before Memorial Day weekend and all that, nobody had masks on. Perhaps we can do Labor Day weekend with masks and make this work. I mean, I think we are like I like your phrase, good enough at masks, right? We're getting better at masks, um, right? I, I know I, you know, I have. It's become more uh, second nature to grab it, put it on, carry it with me. Right? Mm -hmm. I spent the first several weeks of this running back to my car 10 times a day because I had forgotten what I was doing. Now it only happens like two or three times a day. And, and as I go around my, you know, go around, go about my business, I do see very few people who are not wearing masks. And I, I think we are better at that. And I think, um, you know, my concern is, is that we um, think that, okay, now that, that hard work is done, like we did everything, so now we don't have to do any more, right? Rather than this is what got us to where we are, let's keep doing this, right? And I've, you know, as UNM comes back, uh, you know, I've seen the students, there's a lot more students around and a lot more opportunities for those numbers to go up as, as school starts. So I'm, I'm you know, optimistic uh, based on what I'm seeing, but in keeping with uh, my other, you know, many other things, I'm not sanguine, mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable. And um, I think there's also look, a- look. Let me, let me ask you this though too. Interestingly, now that I get you on that, you're not comfortable part of your, your psyche there. Um, the big news of the week, of course, is APS, uh, the school board deciding on Wednesday night that they're mm -hmm. gonna hold off in school learning until uh, the end of the semester. Uh, very interesting set of circumstances here. But it also has brought up one thing that we are way behind on, and that is our broadband coverage statewide. And this has really exposed us. And I'm noticing uh, Senator Michael Padilla, you might have uh, picked up on this. He has uh, created legislation called to create the New Mexico Office of High Speed Broadband Access and Expansion. Interesting little bit there, but I think I know where he's going. Is this the moment to get after broadband? Are we up against the wall here where we have to just say, okay, guys, we need to open the wallet, spend, and let's figure this out. Yes, I mean, in 2020, not having broadband is like not having electricity, uh, you know, not having running water in, in our communities. It is, it's, it's scandalous that we have parts of the state and, you know, folks all over the state who need to be able to do this to get access to education, to doctors, to all the things that, that are happening. And they don't, right? It's as though we said, well, you know, it's nice to have roads, but we're, we're not going to run them out to your house. It is, it's incumbent on all of us as a state to not let this go on any longer than we have to. Um, it is, you know, I have, I, I live in Albuquerque and have good broadband and I still have trouble, you know, I drop calls, drop Zoom meetings, my, when my kids are in classes and whatnot. So it's not limited to the more rural areas of the state or even um, folks who just, you know, who don't have any internet service at their home. This is a statewide issue. It needs to be something that we jump on because we are, you know, so it's so crucial in this moment. And if we don't seize this moment, it's it's never going to happen. It's embarrassing that we haven't done it so far. Scandalous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Senator, your, your thoughts on school not happening for Albuquerque Public Schools until at the end of the semester, potentially. Uh, uh, we had a school board member saying, look, we can always roll back and revisit this as time goes on. But there was an interesting point made in the discussion on Wednesday night, and that is, if you think about what's happening after Labor Day, uh, we've got that situation, but we've also got the holiday season coming up. We've got Thanksgiving, of course, October, I'm sorry, uh, Halloween, and then Thanksgiving, and then the Christmas break, 
And we could be rolling back into a situation even in January where it's worse than we even could possibly hope it could be. Uh, do you see problems down the road with this decision or do you support the decision? I, I think for the time right now, um, it's probably the best thing for them to do. Mm -hmm. they, but I personally think our children are losing a great deal from the experience of being in school. Uh, being around their, their friends and associates, uh, learning the interaction that actually takes place. Uh, it, I think you miss so much. I mean, this is fun doing this on, uh, online, and, and, but I think about how great it is when we're in the studio all together mm -hmm. and how we can interchange and, and react to each other and, and see the difference. And children are losing that. I mean, it's bad enough that they're not going to be allowed to do any social things, no sports, no nothing. They're, we're giving our children nothing but a TV screen or an iPad screen and, and some teaching. You know, they're losing the whole experience of being in school. And so I think we need to focus on how we can possibly make that happen. And I think maybe just saying, no, we're just gonna do everything online, education is maybe the easy way out to do it. It might be the safest, I don't know, I'm not an expert. Well, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of testimony during the hearings, of course, from teachers and others that were concerned. And I can't help but think about the parents, Senator. Uh, you know, if parents have to work. What's your, what's your thought about this? Now that we have the word and we know what's gonna be happening now until the, until the first of the year, basically, where do parents, where do they put their thoughts and minds about how to kind of manage this? Well, if they're, not, if they're not working, or pardon me, if they are working or part of our essential workers, how do they get daycare? Do they have enough daycare available? Is it right. safe? Uh, so there are a lot of extenuating things that happen. Who takes, gets the kids to work? If you have to be at the grocery store at four o'clock in the morning and you're a single parent, uh, you know, it's, there are just many things that we've had to change so much. I, I admire parents tremendously. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they're handling all of this. It's but, really something, um, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Hey guys, that'll do it for us this week. I want to thanks, a big thanks to our panel. I'm back in a moment with some closing thoughts. As always, we'd like to end the show with some additional thoughts from host Gene Grant. And again, this is an important week. Uh, we want to honor all the women who contribute to our show as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote. Gene's got some thoughts on that, as well as the Postal Service and um, how it's been per firmly put in the spotlight uh, because of the election concerns. We always appreciate you listening, encourage you each week to uh, follow us online. It's not just on the weekends when we want to see and hear from you. So head to Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. You can find us any of those places at New Mexico in Focus. And leave us a note about what you'd like to see us covering in the future, what maybe we missed, who we should be talking to. Always love to hear from you. Keep an eye on that Facebook for Facebook Lives that we do through the week. Gearing up for election season, we've got plans in the works. We've got debate invitations out. Lots more information on that coming. As always, we appreciate you tuning in, and we hope everyone stays safe, healthy, and happy. We'll see you again next week. 
Has anyone else found themselves considering their mail carrier in a different light recently? I have. It's amazing how a political controversy can do that. The relationships we have with our mail carriers is a far more personal one than perhaps our president might have realized, considering the public's reaction to the idea of pulling mailboxes and other things out of the mail system. Now, I honestly don't think he understood the level of trust we have with our mail carriers to get the job done for this election. Why? Because we trust them for every important piece of mail now, from social security checks, IRS refund checks, medication for seniors, you name it. They've never let us down. Now, trust is hard earned, but once achieved, it can withstand the politics of the day. Finally, a special thanks to NMIF producer Kathy Wimmer, who works each week, each month, and each year to make sure we have the voices of women on our panel who echo the importance of the 19th Amendment. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.